Hey guys, it is Friday, March 8th, 2019, and you are listening to the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brett Eisledeck, and I'm here to talk to you about car news, car culture, and car whatever. On today's episode, we continue our discussion of the Geneva Auto Show in 2019, uh, talking about some of the debuts of the extreme luxury and high-performance cars, as well as a few notable practical solutions for motoring that are going to be coming in the not-too-distant future. In the car culture segment, I try to wrap my head and emotions around the shutdown of the Lordstown Assembly Plant in Lordstown, Ohio. Uh, There are a ton of things to consider beyond politics and economics, and I just wanted to talk about really the history of GM compact cars and why it is not a huge surprise that Lordstown is being shut down right now. Uh, And then in the final section of the show, in the car whatever section, I wanted to talk a bit about the R50 generation uh, Mini Cooper. That would be the first of the BMW manufactured Coopers uh, from the early 2000s. I saw one today for the first time in what feels like forever. You just don't see them anymore here in West Michigan. So I've got some thoughts about that uh, particular car. Anyway, guys, with all that in mind, uh, at the top of the show, this is where I remind you that uh, this podcast is made available for free on a wide variety of podcasting platforms, including Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so much more. So thank you for listening to the show. If you're not subscribed, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Uh, If you like what you hear, give us a rating and a review on a a platform if they ask you to do that. And if you could share it with somebody else, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. You can also follow along with episodes of the show right here on anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash YSS. M-A-N. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Y-S-S-M-A-N. Uh, anyway, guys, on to the main part of the show after a quick little break and a little bit of an ad sponsorship. See you in a moment. Well, guys, Geneva 22. 20- 19. I was just about to say 2020. Holy cow. Uh, Geneva 2019 has pretty much wrapped up for the press, and I figured it was a good time to run down on some of the more interesting things that were announced at the show. Uh, like I said on Tuesday, you know, what I really love about Geneva, Geneva woo, is that uh, it it is a great combination of design, engineering, and technology that really makes the show uh, so different from many other shows all across the world. And I, I think it's really interesting seeing the the difference between the insane luxury and high performance vehicles that had debuted at Geneva this year versus that of the smaller more regular uh electric fuel friendly things that people are actually going to be able to buy um and I think that really kind of just encapsulates where we are in 2019 uh the people with the haves are looking for an excuse to spend $19 million on a brand new one-off Bugatti. Uh, At the same time, those of us who maybe just are living as much as we can are looking forward to electric uh, Volkswagens and Fiats uh, as best as possible. Now, speaking of the electric Fiat, I did talk about the uh, Sentivento at length in uh, Tuesday's episode, talking about Fiat and how they uh, really surprised me at Geneva this year. Uh, Just for a quick moment... uh, Clean Car Reports, uh, it's an American uh, EV outlet. Uh, they were over in Geneva talking to Fiat about the Sentivento in particular, uh, and they had noticed that all of the aftermarket clip-on parts to customize your vehicle, uh, they were all being branded as Mopar pieces, and that you would order them from Mopar 
through your fiat dealer to get these. And it's very strange because Mopar is a brand that doesn't necessarily have a presence in Europe. And putting that name on those parts really kind of indicates that they're considering a North American launch. Now, they talked to Fiat, and they were a little coy about it, and they said, you know, we're looking at our options carefully, yada, yada, yada. Marketing speak to basically say, you know, we might bring it to the U.S., but we're not 100% sure. I think the big thing that they pulled out of this article, uh, beyond just talking to Fiat, pointing that out and saying, you know, signs point to yes, is that uh, before Sergio Marchioni had passed away, uh, he had said that Fiat was losing $10,000 on every Fiat 500e that they sold in the United States, and that, uh, you know, that's not really a feasible thing to do. Uh, but here in the U.S., to sell your cars in states like California, you do have to have compliance vehicles, EVs, uh, on deck. And, you know, the way that they measure fuel economy here in the U.S. is they look at your entire brand portfolio uh, to determine where you're at. So if I remember right, at least in the U.S., um, GM would be measured on the whole, FCA would be measured on the whole. And so with that fleet expectation of, you know, 25 plus miles per gallon you know that's everything from the ram 3500 on down to the fiat 500e and that's what comes up with your total so fiat is saying that uh they're going to need to have more electric cars out there and the sentivento would be a primary way to kind of balance those things out because you know of course fiat owns well i don't know if they're counting ferrari these days but ferrari would be in the mix i presume alfa romeo maserati uh jeep dodge uh you know, RAM, all these other things, they're going to need these kinds of cars to offset it. So it's a possibility. And it sounds like it's a stronger possibility than I initially thought that this car would come to the U.S., uh, which is really cool. And I think what is also really cool about this is that, you know, it's just such a different thing. And it's like a breath of fresh air. And I honestly believe that the Sentimento is my car of the year from Geneva 2019. So, you know, hit me with those ats, you know, if you would disagree as far as other things that were announced at Geneva that are definitely worth looking into and talking about, I've got a few. Uh, namely, we'll kind of start at the uh, more pedestrian end of things, and we'll kind of wrap up some of the crazy stuff. Uh, first things first, Mazda announced the new CX-30 crossover. Um, everybody thought it was going to be called the CX-4. Nevertheless, it's a Mazda CX product, so it's going to be a very well-styled, well-executed, well-engineered uh, crossover that kind of sits in between the CX-3 and the CX-5. Uh, it sounds like this new crossover is based directly on the chassis uh, that sits beneath the new Mazda 3, so there's going to be some decisions that are made on the thing that I maybe don't necessarily agree with. In particular, is going to be the use of the uh, advanced torsion beam rear suspension instead of a multi-link setup, uh, but it's going to use the two and a half liter uh, Skyactiv inline five, or excuse me, inline four that, you know, is pretty powerful nevertheless. Uh, Mazda did seem to indicate that the Skyactiv X powertrain would be showing up uh, on this crossover, which shouldn't be a huge surprise, but should make it a very interesting uh, comparison vehicle to other mid-size crossover SUVs out there. Uh, I think the main size competitor for this is likely going to be something like the Honda CR-V, uh, the Nissan Rogue, um, other ones like that. Maybe this might be a slightly smaller. It kind of sits in a really strange spot size-wise, and that's the main takeaway I think here is that for every brand, not just Mazda, but, you know, Skoda, Seat, 
uh, Volkswagen, <laughs> just na name a brand, they're looking to find a crossover to fit into every size range uh, to get as many dollars as possible for each of their brands. Now, speaking of niches and crossovers, Audi announced a new version of the e-tron called the Q4 e-tron. Uh, Audi is saying that this vehicle will be ready for production and for sale by the end of this year, perhaps into early 2020. Um, this uh, this e-tron is more or less going to slot in between the Q3 and Q5. Uh, it's got a little bit more of a coupe-like styling, uh, but with 300 horsepower, with four-wheel drive, with a lot of the uh, Audi, you know, engineering technology, sensibility, demand for quality. Uh, it's really going to take the fight directly to Tesla before they announce the Model Y. Um, I think Audi's really trying to get a leg up as fast as possible against uh, Tesla, and I think this Q4 is definitely going to be a good way to do it. Now, this concept-type thing that they showed off at the show does have a lot of very concepty profile type stuff. So I think really if you see photos of it, you kind of squint your eyes a little bit and start attaching the normal Audi styling cues. I think you're going to get a good idea of what's going on there. So keep an eye out for it. I, th I think it's a smart design. It sounds like it's going to be a good execution. And I think at the right price, you know, in the mid $50,000 range or perhaps a little bit less, I think Audi's going to sell a ton of these Q4 SUVs. Now, one other really practical design that I thought was really, really cool at the show was the Mercedes-Benz EQV prototype. Uh, EQ is their new title for all of their electric vehicles going forward, and the EQV uh, indicates that it is a van. Uh, Mercedes-Benz designed this EQV to uh, basically be an eight-passenger family transport cargo van whatever, at least in this specific uh, instance that they're showing off, it is an eight-passenger uh, luxury van, so it's got a fully new interior uh, to match the uh, A-Class hatchback uh, in Europe. It's got uh, leather seats, all that stuff. Uh, Mercedes-Benz is saying about 200 miles of range uh, when fully loaded with people. Charge times on it would be less than an hour to go from zero to near 100% uh, with the rapid charge system that's on board. Uh, really, I think, you know, beyond this passenger luxury van uh, being showed off, it's going to be the practical cargo van uh, models that are going to be the most interesting and really could change a lot of things in Europe. Uh, cargo vans are, of course, the pickup trucks uh, of at least mainland Europe, and uh, giving these you know, workmen, an affordable option to get into EVs that generally has less cost for maintenance. It's obviously going to have less tax when it comes to emissions. Um, likely it would be subsidized by the governments there. Uh, I think it's really going to make a good case for itself to replace your Sprinter, cargo van, uh, transit van, whatever you've got uh, in the not-too-distant future. And I really hope that Mercedes uh, looks to sell a version of this uh, as the Metris in the not-too-distant future in North America. One other really interesting uh, product here that was announced, at least in terms of uh, things, well, you know, you've got an all new, uh, you got a billion sports cars, I guess, is to try to segue this into it. It just felt like every single car company was coming out with a new sports car. Uh, Porsche announced uh, variants of the uh, Boxster and the, uh, excuse me, 
the Boxster and the Cayman. Oh my gosh, my brain just about shot out of my anus there. Uh, the Boxster and Cayman have a new T designation. Uh, in case you didn't know, that is for touring in Porsche lingo. Uh, typically, they're going to be a little bit more light, a little more sporty, slightly more powerful, but not quite as hardcore uh, as the GTS models. Um, I'm willing to bet that the 718 Boxster and Cayman are really going to feel great in this spec. Uh, not going to be a huge extra added cost to the cars, um, but it will be a little while until we get them here in the United States. But I can't wait to hear more about them. Uh... What else got announced? Uh, there was a new 911 Cabrio that I believe got unveiled, uh, which, you know, new 911s seem to be coming out of every orifice these days. Uh, we had a all-new Bentley, uh, the number 9 edition uh, Continental, which looks drop-dead gorgeous. Uh, if you haven't seen photos of it, it was in British Racing Green. It's just the perfect color combo on the Bentley altogether. Now, when we start getting into the crazy sports car designations, well, whew, where do you kick things off? Uh, Koenigsegg announced a new uh, hypercar that's going to be the replacement for the, I think it's the Ajera. Maybe not the Ajera. It's, uh, eh. anyway, it's the new fast Koenigsegg with the gasoline engine without the direct drive transmission. I believe it's named Josta after the father of uh, Koenigsegg who currently runs the company. Um, largest rear spoiler ever fitted to a production car. Um, more than likely one or two may make it to the United States since they are building these now for North American uh, distribution. Uh, Koenigsegg, you know, is one of my favorite hypercar companies just because they do things so differently. Uh, this car is of no exception, so definitely check it out online if you have not seen it quite yet. None too far away from that is a 1900 horsepower Pinaferina hybrid sport, or excuse me, all-electric sports car. Uh, Rymac, the electric car company, which you might know from the Grand Tour. Uh, that was the car that, uh, what's his name? Uh, Richard Hammond crashed in Europe not that long ago and nearly burst into flames within. Uh, Rymac is providing the batteries in the electric motors for this car, but with 1,900 horsepower and all-wheel drive, it says it's going to Accelerate from 0 to 60 in less than 2 seconds, uh, which according at least to Elon Musk when he announced the Roadster uh, prototype not that long ago, uh, we're nearing the limits of adhesion uh, when it comes to standard street tires. So my guess is this Pinaferina is going to be about as fast as you can get. And while we're on this Pinaferina for a moment, uh, it is kind of interesting to see this car uh, and kind of go, wow, that looks like... A Ferrari and a Lamborghini and so many other things and that is because of course Pininfarina styles a lot of vehicles for companies like Ferrari uh, all the time and I'm not 100% sure if Pininfarina the design house is making these cars or if it's a licensing thing where they design the car and then another company is manufacturing it for them it's really weird how some of that stuff works in Europe, and I don't really get it. But nevertheless, it is a very exciting design. It's a very cool thing to see. Um, so definitely give that a check online if that sounds at all interesting to you. Uh, there were a bunch of other crazy uh, sports cars announced. There's a one-of-one one Bugatti uh, that's based on the Chiron. Uh, it's a $19 million car that sounds like it's going to Ferdinand Pike. Uh, the former CEO of the Volkswagen Auto Group, uh, the guy who basically made it so the Veyron could exist. Uh, yeah, I mean, opulence at the highest degree for a $20 million one-of-one one Bugatti, but 
hey, it's Geneva, I guess. But really, really wanted to top things out here when it comes to the high-performance sports cars. And I think really beyond the uh, Sentivento from Fiat as my favorite cars of the, or my favorite car of the show uh, are the Aston Martin twins of the 003 and the new Vanquish. Now, if you haven't been paying attention to what Aston Martin has been up to as of late, uh, Aston Martin has been working with Red Bull Racing uh, and specifically working with Adrian Newey of Red Bull Racing uh, to design some really high-performance stuff uh, in their in their uh, road cars. Uh, specifically, the Valkyrie project has been the kind of focal point for all of this work. And basically, Adrian Newey is going, uh, what if Formula One didn't have regulations on aerodynamics, on uh, engine performance, all that kind of stuff? And the Valkyrie has become this, like, 11, 1,100 plus horsepower, high performance, uh, luxury race car for the road and for the track. Uh, this Valkyrie uh, has this insane V12 that's been designed for it, which I think was co-done with Cosworth. Uh, it revs to like over 10,000 RPM, uh, but it also uses a hybrid curve system to uh, kind of do torque fill like what the uh, McLaren P1 had. Uh, this thing is going to be a performance nightmare for cars like the, uh, the McLaren Senna, for the Ferrari, La Ferrari, whatever the evolution of that is at this point, which I can't keep track of. Uh, basically, name a European exotic hypercar. Uh, this is going to be going toe-to-toe with that, and I would be making a bet right now that the Valkyrie will likely be the fastest of all of those, um, but that kind of remains to be seen because we haven't quite seen the full production unit. They did have a production prototype Valkyrie at the show that seems to be the first indication that this is what they're going to send off to the European and North American uh, road testing companies to get it certified. But uh, in the meantime, you know, it's still under construction. What is coming from the Valkyrie project are, as I said, two new vehicles. It's the 003 and the Vanquish, uh, which kind of distill what the Valkyrie is into uh, more road legal road oriented models uh, each time. So the first one is the 003, styled very similar to the Valkyrie, taking a lot of what they learned from that car uh, and applying it to this top-end hypercar. So if the Valkyrie is perhaps more of a competitor to the Senna GTR, uh, the P1 GTR, the FXX, things like that, uh, the 003 would be more of a direct competitor to the standard Senna, to the uh, Ferrari LaFerrari, to the P1, so on and so forth. Uh, the 003 uses a twin-turbo V6 uh, that produces an unspecified amount of horsepower, I'm assuming more than 800, uh, that's also mated to an electric uh, system that's mounted on the front axle, so the gas engine drives the rear, the electric axle is on the front, uh, so the car is technically all-wheel drive, uh, but nevertheless, you know, it's designed for aerodynamic performance. Uh, Adrian Newey gave it some really interesting F1-inspired uh, aerodynamics on the front of the car with these reshapable carbon elements that will bend and flex uh, depending on the speed of the vehicle and what kind of air is passing through it. The rear spoiler in the back of the car actually is this kind of bendable carbon fiber that is actuated that it will operate as like an air brake and like reshape itself to different demands uh, when you're cornering that 
is genuinely about as cutting edge as you can get. Um, we're, we're getting to the point now where we can make these blends of carbon fiber that can do things that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago was black magic of sorts. Uh, just seeing it in action actuate in the small percentages in the videos on Carfection was really cool. And Aston Martin is saying that they have formulas for this bendable carbon fiber that are going to let it uh, increase like another like 70% in like what it can move. And that's just incredible over what we have right now. What I really liked about the 003 was the interior of the vehicle. Um, Aston Martin, the designer guy who was in the Carfection video, talked a lot about how uh, they wanted to still make it a very drivable track machine. Um, so the window that's in the front, kind of aping um, something from the uh, McLaren F1 from the 90s, is that they wanted to give you as much vision as possible as to what is ahead of you. And in this car, they like position the A-pillars back in a way where the window kind of comes out in front of you and wraps around that just looks absolutely incredible uh, in those GoPro shots from the driver's seat that you can just kind of see everything and it gives you a very clear shot of the wheel arches so you can kind of place the car directly where it needs to be on a track. The other really cool thing about that design is that in the interior uh, Aston Martin is getting rid of dashboard elements that include like built-in navigation, things like that. Basically, they go, they're going, you have a nice phone, you've got an iPhone, you've got a Google Pixel, uh, just download our app, uh, attach your phone to the dashboard, and you've got all the, you know, infotainment stuff that you need. And all they would have to do is just update the app. They don't have to update the hardware in your car. And it's kind of just future-proofing it to be uh, as good as it needs to be, I guess is a good thing. Uh, other cool stuff is that the seat is fixed in the car. And so basically the pedals and the steering wheel move towards you or away from you, uh, depending on what your needs for the vehicle are. Um, it gives you more of an F1 style seating position because of the aerodynamics of the vehicle. Um, so you've got like these little like pads for your butt and for your back that are made out of this like carbon fiber plastic stuff. I, I, it's, I don't even know how to explain it because it's so futuristic. And so basically, you know, it's a car that's going to be built to drive, perhaps not commute around in, um, but, you know, it's still got a leather steering wheel. Uh, it's still got, you know, these really cool air vents up on the front. Uh, so it'll still have like air conditioning and heating and all that other kind of stuff. So it'll be usable to some extent, but definitely going to be more of a hardcore uh, performance oriented uh, Valkyrie spinoff. The other vehicle in this is the Vanquish uh, concept. Now, the Vanquish brand, if you remember that, uh, for quite a long time was the top trim uh, kind of performance luxury car of Aston Martin that was normally based on their larger GT cars. Uh, this time, the Vanquish is breaking off into its own specific model based on what they've learned from the Valkyrie. Uh, more or less what I'm gathering from it, because it's kind of been difficult to get a lot of details uh, on the vehicle, is that it's going to be like a road-going version, an even more road-going version of the 003. So it will still have that twin-turbo V6. I don't 100% know if it's going to have that uh, hybrid system on the front axle, but it's going to have a more normal interior. Uh, it's going to have a little bit of a softer suspension. It's going to have some more fixed aero elements to it but still going to be a much more hardcore version of Vanquish's, uh, or at least compared to other Vanquish's that we've had in the past. And really, Aston Martin is saying with 
all of these cars, from the Valkyrie to the 003 to the new Vanquish. Uh, they really want to take the fight to McLaren. They really want to take the fight to uh, Ferrari, to Lamborghini, and say, hey, we are the top dog when it comes to high-performance production cars in Europe. Uh, you are going to be chasing after us now instead of the opposite way around. And that is really exciting to me. Um, I love the fact that these cars are being designed uh, in the UK. It sounds like they're going to be being built in the UK. Um, really, they just awesome design work and engineering and you know it's it's Aston Martin on one hand working with Adrian Newey but it's also Adrian Newey taking what he's learned from Formula One and applying it to road cars and that's going to make a lot of new vehicles a lot more technologically advanced in the not too distant future and I think that's what is really exciting about what they're doing right now. Uh, but if you haven't had a chance you know like I said check out any website Search for Geneva 2019. They'll have tons of photos, write-ups about what's going on. Carfection did uh, some really cool videos on some of the cars that were announced at Geneva 2019. Uh, the Straight Pipes had some really cool videos that they did uh, in Geneva where they kind of run through uh, the show floor from a North American perspective. Uh, so head on over to YouTube, head on over to the uh, Car and Drive or any of those other car websites and check it out. There's some crazy stuff to take a look at. So in the culture segment of the show, I wanted to talk a bit about the shutdown of the Lordstown Assembly Plant in Lordstown, Ohio. And it's been really difficult recording this segment. I've I've recorded it, re-recorded it many times. It's it's tough to kind of wrap your head around this problem because there are so many different aspects as to why this has happened. You know, I've talked about on the show how, you know, GM announced that this was a thing. They blamed, you know, the tariffs by the Trump administration on China for adding all these costs to their bottom line that they just can't support low-selling vehicles anymore. They, they've talked about how they didn't anticipate crossovers being a thing and, you know, these compact cars just aren't selling and so why make them? And there's a lot of truth to that as to why GM is pulling the plug on this plant. There is a lot of truth to that. People who voted for Donald Trump thought he was going to do X, Y, and Z to save manufacturing in this country. But I think a lot of those people, as well as the president, don't seem to understand how the global economy operates. That That's also a huge part of the problem. But I think for me, in this specific regard, I think it's the tiger finally catching up with GM in terms of the the rhythm of either good car, bad time, or bad time, good car. And, you know, they've been saved a couple of times with that rhythm where things just kind of worked out just right. But I think in 2019, uh, it, it just finally synced up to where the bad thing happened and it was a bad time and it it's got to stop. So what I mean by that is that, you know, Lordstown Assembly has been building compact cars for GM since 1982. Uh, the first of the J-bodies debuted in 82 uh, with the Chevy Cavalier, the Buick Skylark, the Pontiac Sunfire, uh, the Cadillac Cimarron, and there was an Oldsmobile in there, and I'm totally blanking out on what the Oldsmobile is. Uh, but nevertheless, these cars were, you know, pretty competent efforts to kind of keep the Japanese onslaught in the compact marketplace at bay. 
you know, GM, I think, had the foresight to say, hey, you know, we need to get into this segment and we need to put up a decent fight. But at the same time, you know, they kind of rested on the fact that they are GM, they make GM cars, and people who like GM products will continue to buy GM cars. And for the most part, that worked throughout all of the 80s, uh, throughout most of the 90s, and it really didn't become a problem until after 1996. Now, it's kind of important to kind of think about that time frame, at least in terms of compact car history, because when you ask most people what they think of when they think of compact cars from the 90s, I think the majority of people you talk to are going to say Honda Civic, specifically the EK Honda Civic. Uh, it was a car that was a shocking revelation for compact cars at the time. You know, in terms of looks, driving dynamics, performance, so much more. Uh, I mean, it was everything that all things before and after have really been measured by when it comes to small cars. And it really wasn't until recently that I would argue Honda kind of got past the EK as that standard. And when you consider in 1994 that GM had introduced the third generation J-Body to pretty strong reviews, to have all of that go away in 1996 must have been a huge shock to their system. And when you consider that from 1996 until 2004, the Cavalier and Sunfire largely continued on unchanged, minus a few styling tweaks and a couple little updates to some of the engine options. It's crazy that GM just gave up and that that didn't kill the small car platform at GM entirely. And I seem to remember reading articles at some point in time around there that Lordstown was in trouble because GM didn't have a good small car. And I maybe I'm making this up. I don't remember. But it seems like there was a talk that GM wouldn't continue fighting in this segment anymore. Well, lo and behold, you know, they ended up doing the right thing. And they designed the Delta body cars uh, that were kind of based on work from, you know, Opel in Germany and some stuff in Korea and things here in the United States. And in 2005, uh, the Saturn Ion and the Chevy Cobalt were cars that had been kind of based on the, uh, what is it, they, they kind of co-developed them based on uh, benchmarks from Volkswagen MK4, so the Jetta and the Golf, uh, and they, they came out two pretty strong reviews but again it was a bad timing for a car that was for the most part okay at launch but then got surpassed by the Civic and Corolla once again but market changes put pressure back on these cars to be good because even though it was just an okay car fuel economy demands were increasing fuel prices were through the roof and it got to the point, as I recall, GM couldn't make enough of the fuel economy edition versions of the Cobalt. They had like a higher uh, gear ratio uh, and like some different aero tweaks. And these cars were getting like well over 40 miles per gallon. And GM was like, oh shit, we got a hit on our hands. And they used that money and that time and effort to fuel things like the Cobalt SS and the HHR SS and so many other things that are based on the same platform that they ended up being relatively successful by mistake. And it's 
crazy to think about that, that they almost lost this segment of the market, but because outside factors changed the game, they ended up being relatively successful. And these cars continued for a while, you know, based on those merits where they arguably didn't deserve that attention. And when the cruise came out in the early 20-teens, I think it was 2011 when it finally arrived in the U.S., again, it felt like a game-changer, and it arguably was a game-changer. Uh, when you think about when the Focus came out in 2008 and then the cruise not long after, they were leagues ahead of competition from Chrysler, Honda, Toyota, Nissan, any other brand. And it was weird to have American compact cars be the best option in the segment. And, you know, GM, I think, was pretty proud of that. And the, you know, Obama administration talked about how proud they were of GM for making these really good cars. And I seem to remember Lordstown Assembly getting some kind of award for quality at that point in time uh, with the cruise. Uh, but I don't remember the specifics of it because, of course, it was forever ago and Articles can be hard to dig up sometime. Uh, but, uh, you know, things were really good. And then GM just kind of let things slide. And by the time the second generation cruise came around, you know, fuel prices had started dipping again and people's tastes and crossovers and SUVs had really expanded once again. And GM was caught flat-footed. And as much as they had a pretty good car, they didn't anticipate that... An all-new Civic, an all-new Corolla, uh, an all-new Golf. All of these different cars were going to come out and just destroy the crews in the marketplace with better technology, better chassis, you know, better engineering. And, you know, GM just went, well, uh, people who like Chevys will buy the Chevy. Oh, and I guess to me, it's no wonder that they're in the spot they're in today. And, you know, there's a part of me that wonders if GM is happy to not have a compact car in their lineup anymore, if GM is happy to not have to worry about this segment anymore. And it's really kind of disturbing when you frame it in that way and when you kind of think that it was a comedy of errors that got them to where they are uh, in terms of both success and then eventually failure. And... You know, it, it's just incredibly disappointing that that this has come to this point, that thousands of people are losing their jobs, and they're losing their jobs earlier than they expected, and GM is just going, eh, we're done with this plant, we're done, walking away, dusting our hands off, and, you know, everybody's, everybody is justifiably pissed about it. Uh, I was reading an article last night about how the UAW and the people of Lordstown are fighting against, uh, you know, Amazon coming in, buying this plant, converting it to a distribution center, as they have with, you know, lots of other plants all across the Midwest, because those are jobs that they do not want. They're jobs that aren't going to pay enough. They're jobs that aren't going to fulfill these people uh, with the satisfaction of building something cool and good and that people enjoy and the people of Lordstown and the UAW are trying to get all these different automakers to come in and do stuff and as much as they say that they also tell Elon Musk no we don't want Tesla to build a plant in Lordstown and it's just 
I, I just, I, I can't wrap my head around how stupid this entire outcome is. That how stupid they are to say no to like these different things and yes to others and thinking that someone's gonna ride in and just say I have the solution to save this plant when this plant has been on its last leg since 2004 like it's it's just incredible to me that we we got to this point finally after all this time after all this work after all of this stress that this is the outcome that we get and that it's not going to get any better and it's not going to get any worse it's just going to be what it is and I think it would really be good for GM to just suddenly turn around and say oh by the way we've got a compact car that we're going to use this plant for uh here's what we're doing but they're not they're never going to do that they were never going to do that I think GM has been looking to shut this plant down for a while and it's just the right time at the right place and that's how it is and you know it's as long as it is cheaper to produce a car in Mexico or China or Korea and ship it to the United States that's likely going to be the option that they take and I think we just have to collectively wrap our heads around that and whether or not that is right and whether or not that is wrong that's the reality that we're in today and I think it's it's time that, you know, we really start considering how we spend our money, where we spend our money, what kind of demands we place on the people who make our cars and trucks. Because if Chrysler can bring a plant back to Detroit, there's no reason why GM or Ford can't do the same. And at the same time, you know, what incentive do they have to do that at any point? And it's just a big circle of demands and wants and demands and wants and failures and uh, it it's hard to even wrap your head around sometimes so maybe this helps in, in kind of contextualizing what's going on with Lordstown maybe it doesn't but I think it's really important to kind of consider that this was going to happen and that there really wasn't a way to stop it outside of GM completely changing what they were making at the Lordstown plant. And that just wasn't going to happen either way. So apologies for the rambling, but uh, I think it was a discussion that's definitely worth having. So last up, a car that's on my mind, and it is one that I feel like I just don't see enough anymore. Uh, I'm talking about the original first-generation R50 Mini Cooper. Uh, the Mini Cooper, of course, was the follow-up to the longtime Morris Mini and Austin Mini or whatever it was, a very confusing production history of the Mini uh, in the UK from the 1950s up until, I think, the early 2000s. Um, the car had been exported to markets all over the world, including the United States, and the successor that had been designed and engineered by BMW was really an interesting entry into the marketplace because it was one of the first subcompact cars we'd had in the U.S. for quite some time. And it was a subcompact car that was being designed from an engineering team that was really focusing in on the sporty credentials that the Mini had always had. 
The car was very small. It was smaller than a Honda Civic, uh, but it had these quirky features on the interior and exterior that were really unlike anything else out there at that point in time. Uh, the speedometer had been built into the dashboard that was the size of like a dinner plate. Um, the tachometer was also around there as well. The exterior was cutesy, um, and it was compact and fuel efficient, and you could customize it in all of these different ways to make it yours. And if memory serves, it was slightly expensive, but it wasn't exactly unobtainable for people who were looking to buy their first brand new car. Uh, I remember getting lots and lots of literature at the mini booths at any car show we went to uh, in the bigger cities like Detroit or Chicago, uh, simply because we didn't have a mini dealer here in West Michigan. And to buy one, you would have had to drive to, you know, Detroit, Ann Arbor or Chicago uh, to get one. And as such, you would have had to taken it there to get serviced. And it was really weird. And I remember talking to a lady uh, who had purchased one, one of the first ones, which I think was, what, 2000 or 2001 here in the U.S., and she talked about how frustrating it was to have to take the car to get serviced, you know, to have to drive it, you know, 200 or 300 plus miles on a round trip just to get the oil changed, and, like, how weird that was, and as time went on, we eventually got a mini dealership here in Grand Rapids, and sales of the mini did quite well. And by the time that had happened, we were on the verge of getting the second generation Mini Cooper. And it's weird kind of thinking about how this first car came out. It was pretty popular. Sales, you know, were okay, you know, for such a limited dealer network, but you almost never see first generation cars. And from what I understand, the first generation cars, and really the second generation cars, are absolutely abysmal when it comes to reliability, dependability, and quality. Um, if they haven't rusted to pieces, uh, the transmissions likely blew up and they were too expensive to replace. And a lot of them have been parted out and many other things to kind of keep other ones going. Uh, the one I saw at Chick-fil-A today was a first generation, I think it was an R. 52 Cooper S, if I remember the model designation correctly. Uh, it was British Racing Green with white stripes. It looked choice, uh, but it had a uh, hole in the exhaust, had some rust around the wheel wells, uh, really didn't seem to be holding up all that well. Definitely looked like a uh, teenager's first car. And that's really the crazy thing, is that these first-generation cars that I would have loved to have had as a teenager uh, in the early aughts, uh, I, you know, they're cheap as chips these days. You could buy one for probably two grand. Might not run very well, might not be in very good shape, but it is the car that I craved at that point in time. And it's just weird. I don't, I don't know. It, it's, it's weird when you start considering a lot of that kind of stuff. The things that you were really into at that point in time are now affordable to buy, but whether or not they're good to own and drive uh, it is a completely separate thing that you may not have considered uh, back in 2001 or 2002. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, yeah, if you know somebody who has their first generation Mini, is it in good shape? Are they still able to drive it daily? Um, I'd really be curious to know if you see a lot more of these around you uh, in other parts of the country, because here in Michigan, I, I, I can't think of the last time other than today that I've seen a first generation Cooper. So hit me up on Twitter at YSSMAN uh, with some details about what you know or don't know. And uh, I'd like to hear what you think. Thank you.
Well, guys, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Ezelike, and you can follow me on Twitter at YSSMAN, where I talk about cars, politics, and other general BS. Uh, you can also follow along with episodes of this show at anchor.fm slash YSSMAN. Uh, we also post this episode, or this episode, among many others, on a wide variety of podcasting platforms, including Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so much more. Uh, so if you aren't subscribed, yo, what's up? hit the subscribe button. I was going to say the signature button. That seems dumb. Hit that subscribe button. Uh, and if you're on a platform that asks for uh, ratings and reviews, if you could just give us a second to just give us a four or five star review, I would be greatly appreciative of that because it does help us get seen uh, by uh, other folks. It helps us move up the list of uh, podcasting stuff. Um, as far as other things go, guys, well, hey, uh, spring seems to be on the verge of springing. As much as we started this week with some very snowy and very cold weather here in Michigan, uh, we are seeing sunshine today, and it's supposed to be in the 40s tomorrow. I know I'm itching to get out to my car to clean it extensively, uh, and I am very excited about that. So hopefully if you're in an area where it's warm, it's nice, it's getting friendly. Hi, son. How are you? Uh, it's going to be a great spring. Uh, so with all that, mind, guys, I hope you have a great start to your weekend, and we will see you come Tuesday uh, for the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.